This episode is sponsored by Microsoft. Join Microsoft Chief Sustainability Officer Melanie Nakagawa and other sustainability leaders for a conversation exploring the latest tech innovations to help companies address reporting regulations. Tune in on June 15th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on LinkedIn Live and learn more at microsoft.com forward slash sustainability. And this episode is also sponsored by 100 Plus Accelerator. Applications are open. 100 Plus Accelerator is searching for solutions to maximize collective impact by partnering with innovative startups to solve some of the world's most pressing sustainability challenges. Visit 100plusaccelerator.com and apply by June 30th. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Circularity 23 in Seattle, Washington. On this week's edition, some of the sights and sounds of Circularity 23, how the circularity community is rethinking plastic, is generative AI bad for the environment, and ocean carbon capture starts to make waves. We're taking a deep dive this week on 350. It's June 9th, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Always so glad to have you with us. And joining me high atop the Hyatt Regency in downtown Seattle is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Uh, joining you from across the table. Across the table. <laughs> on to the ever, top of a building, yeah. As opposed to across the country. Yeah, I hope uh, you're well. It's, I'm doing great. I'm a little tired. We've, it's been a crazy week. I'm sure you are too. Yeah, we both kind of have, uh, you can hear it in our voices, I think. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, um, well, it was really a terrific week, as always, John Schmea and his team, uh, Suzuki and Corey Goldberg, really pulled out all the stops in, in creating this ter- terrific program. And, of course, the rest of the company just making sprinkling that pixie duck dust that just creates the community that's become here. And it's, it's just, uh, on the one hand, it was you know, 50% bigger than last year. We went from like 800, 800 people to 1,400 people, more than 50%, I think, if I do my arithmetic correctly. But it also still has that um, that small small town feeling a little bit. Um, sort of our mantra has always been uh, intimacy at scale. We always try for that. And I really feel that they, they pull that off. Um, great energy. We're going to talk about uh, some of the things in, in a couple minutes. Um, I haven't really seen you, Heather, this week. Uh, how was your week? It was great. And I, I just want to uh, glom on to that comment about small town feel. I mean, Seattle had, did, did a terrific mm, job yeah. in making us feel very much at home, like making this big city feel like a very small, intimate community. Um, I uh, One of the things I really appreciated is that they had a number of their small businesses that have been impacted and, and helped by some of the programs that they have going on. So I'll just call out one one of them next cycle, which is a, a business development program that uh, the city has put on and and, the, and then actually surrounding counties to encourage businesses that are focused on circularity. So you, you see uh, organizations like the Refugee Artisan Initiative that is helping immigrant women take materials that have been claim, you know, re- yeah. re- recaptured and, and uh, reclaimed and turning them into all manner of, of products and, and making an income. Um, and you, you also see organizations working on food waste, on sharing models, like a gear, gear garage is one I'm thinking of, which is doing uh, sort of ownership of outdoor supplies that can then be shared on an exchange. And so the city has done a terrific job, um, all the various departments in really setting the kind of climate that you want to see for economic opportunities. It's not, it's not just sticks, you know, they have some pretty significant sticks, one being this great, very unique building code um, that they have where you have to have a deconstruction assessment on buildings. Um, you, they have to to do that and they can't just demo buildings now yeah. um so but also lots of incentives like grants and and so forth 
And, and we had a, a two great welcomes, one from uh, Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell, uh, who, um, and then the other from uh, Washington uh, State Governor Jay Is uh, Inslee. Um, and, and both Governor Inslee and, and Mayor Harrell um, just, I mean, they did a really terrific job. You know, it's typical <laughs> that, you know, politicians, we've had plenty of politicians, governors and mayors and, and the like, uh, come to our events and, and welcome folks. And it's, you know, it's usually a little bit of a boosterism, you know, because it's a great place to do business. They're, they're just, you know, yeah. doing what, you know, the voters want them to do. These were really substantive they uh, were. Yeah. Uh, politicians who really knew what this event was about and really have, have thought a lot about it. And, and uh, uh, Bruce Harrell, the mayor, talked a lot about it through the lens of diversity um, and his own his own story. And it just really... <laughs> his parents were tight with the money. <laughs> tight with the money. Yeah, that was his theme. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, of course, Governor Inslee, I just can't say enough great uh, things about what he had to say uh, and, and recognizing... Uh, the power of the people in the room to affect change, not just in Washington State and beyond. Um, and, and so that was just, uh, you know, really refreshing. It's always refreshing when politicians who come to your event to, to speak there actually understand what the event is about, yes, and understand what the yeah. audience is, is, who the audience is and what they're grappling with. And, and so I just really want to you know, could just give a shout out to the city and the state for for as you said um you know laying out the the green carpet and and really uh, uh the emerald city the laid emerald out the city. green carpet there you go um any other big i know we're going to talk about plastics a little bit we're going to talk about uh, ai artificial intelligence uh in a, in a minute or two but any other big uh takeaways or um uh, or, or just insights from this? yeah i'll ask the same of you in a moment but one of the i I always appreciate hearing from the diverse generational representation that we have in this community. And we had a great panel um, that was moderated by Brian Lewis, who heads up the Emerging Leader Program for greenbiz.org. And uh, one of the things that really struck me during that chat was the young man on the panel, and I'm totally spacing out Gaston, on his name. Just, Gaston, yeah. I think um, but his wardrobe is i think he said almost entirely secondhand clothing and so to me that was just one of those striking examples of how behavior change that you learn at a certain point of your age is going to really drive like things like business models in the future because you know this gentleman this young man is going to go off and I mean, he, you know these people are shaping the programs of tomorrow and it gives me hope yeah. uh that that we'll see fundamental systems change. Uh, so I, I, that was just one thing that popped up. I mean, so many great sessions and I'll, we'll talk about a few in a moment, but what about you? What, what was like one of the big strike you in the head mm -hmm. <laughs> moments? Well, one of the things, there are a number of them, but the one I want to focus on is that, uh, you know, we traditionally have focused our events at large companies, oh, billion, yeah. billion dollar plus companies, and mm -hmm. more recently, billion dollar re annual revenue. And, and more recently we've started um, welcoming and engaging with startups yeah. and some scale-ups, but but there's a whole bunch of folks in the middle there. And I, I hosted company. a panel mm -hmm. uh, of of mid-cap companies, mm -hmm. companies in the ten to two hundred fifty million dollar range, which is a lot of companies in, in way more than the Fortune one thousand. There's probably tens of thousands of, or, or more, right. and um, to really help uh, sort of understand what some of their needs are and not just in circularity, but in general. And, and as we develop some some things we're building, some online uh, platforms and some other programming, it was really, uh, I think, just really presented to me the opportunity that's pretty untapped to 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 really uh, engage with this uh, companies of, of course, there's so many sizes and sectors, but even within the, in the 10 million to $250 million, um, but they're all grappling with a lot of issues that, that the big guys are and don't have the resources, uh, financial or human resources, deal with them. And they are part of somebody's scope three. Yeah. And so they're now having to uh, to report this to whatever their customer who is, that's uh, reporting, a large company customer that's reporting their carbon emissions from their supply chains. And wow, that just feels like a greenfield. So to speak. Yeah, I mean, if every company just got really good about reporting their own scope one and two, then we could take that data and yeah. use it across supply chains. Yeah. So, yeah, lots more to talk about. But you know what? Um, let's do a, a, a shorter dive into the weekend review. 
in the Week in Review this week, Joel, I want to start us off with your essay from the, the newsletter, the title of which was How AI Chatbots Are Transforming the Sustainability Profession. So, and these are these generative AI things. And I, I actually, there was some a number of sessions where people are asking how many people use this stuff. And it was interesting to see um, how many hands go up um, oh, in those rooms. I have to confess, um, I haven't really used any yet. Yeah. And I, it's kind of, an, a, for me, that's just been a bandwidth thing. I haven't figured out. I have actually looked at how it might be used as an editing tool, um, how it could help just drive, yeah. um, you know, quicker stuff. But, you know, I love I, the, the article. I, I love the one you did a few weeks back about, you know, sort of having a conversation with one of these things. But this was really fundamentally focused on some potential applications for the sustainability professional. And I loved the questions you were posing. You know, how would you explain the circular economy to my sales team so that they can explain it to customers? Um, and I also love the fact that you made up these questions, but a couple of them were like real one, real ones. Yeah. Um, not that yours weren't real, but, yeah, no, no. but uh, so I guess I'm curious what your motive, like, I mean, I know what your motivation was, but what is your, what do you want the sustainability professional to really know about the possibilities here, particularly in communications. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I've I've started playing with these things. The first step was to just start asking. I did a little Q and A with it uh, some months ago, as yep. you mentioned. That was just me engaging, you know, with the chat bot as if it was a you know somewhat a hu more human like uh, being, and just asking questions and having a you know kind of conversation that we might have on this podcast or on stage at one of our events. But the, the next level, and this just goes to some of the uses I've been uh, doing, is just to you know, ask it the kinds of questions that an actual sustainability professional might have. Um, so you, know, you, you mentioned one, but here's another one. I'm a supply chain professional, and I'm thinking of switching jobs. I want to work for a company that values sustainability in supply chain and is working to decarbonize the raw material it buys. What questions should I ask a potential employer to assess whether it's a leader in this area? Now I plugged everything I just said into six different chatbots. That's what I did. I asked uh, five questions of six different chatbots to see how they'd respond, and it's pretty interesting and amazing. So that's I just wanted to demonstrate how a sustainability professional might use it. Yeah. Now the other thing that and I allude to this, but didn't we didn't really demonstrate it because it's well, it just didn't seem appropriate. Well, and by the way, there's a separate document because yeah. those six. Those six uh, chatbots answering the five <laughs> questions generated over 10,000 words. Oh, boy. Now, so if you can just imagine a typical GreenBiz article is under 1,000 or less. So this is a pretty long document, but I wanted it's downloadable. You can check it out. Um, but the other use is to start plugging in. Um, I've plugged in uh, research reports and just copied and pasted into chatbot and said, summarize this, please. What are the, and it comes up with five or six or whatever number of salient points. Um, you could even plug in a couple different things and say compare these that, two. Yeah. Um, you can, you know, you I talk about, you know, putting in a sustainability report and having it synthesize that and get, get down to the basics. You know, right now, if, uh, you know, Wall Street's doing this, uh, the big investment firms, you know, the, there's often these statements in their 10K quarterly reports that say um, just really find, you know, small print in proverbial way and, and that one uh, one quarter, they might say, we may be doing this or we expect to be doing this. And the next quarter, it may be the same paragraph, except it just says, we are doing this. Uh, or maybe it's the opposite. It said, we are, we're committed to doing this. And then the next time it says, we may be. Uh, AI can pick that up in a way that a human mm -hmm. just might miss it. And yeah. so I think there's a lot of really interesting potential and this is all just getting going in the last six months and so i i and i, I talked with paul bear who's uh, actually used to write for us and uh he's really becoming one of the go-to uh, uh experts on this he writes a, a Substack uh thing called chat gpt nuggets I, I interviewed him about some of the implications here he said you know if you're not into this in five, you know, it, no one's going to have a relevant career five years from now, he said, if if they're not uh, paying attention to this. So I really, I think it's one of these, the sooner you get into it, the, the, the better uh, the better it'll be for you in, in your career. I just want to make one final comment before we move on to the other part of this, which is also fascinating. Right. Uh, but 
at the conference this week, I, I ran a session on tra tracking and traceability. Mm. And this came up in that session because if you think about it, like this being generative AI, generative AI, right. um, it could be used as a force for good or as a force for evil. And this right. concept, number one, you know, just think about the way that a journalist, I mean, that, that was when I read it, like comparing reports, I'm thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to have to go and look at some of these and I'm going to, that's probably where I'll try it out first. But when you are making a claim, it's going to be a whole lot easier for people to run these things through and, and see if you're making that claim erroneously or if there's fact behind yeah. it. And so like as a, a, it came up sort of in the uh-oh stage, but also you, it probably is also easier to game a claim. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that, that whole layer of conversation came in around like the tracking and how do you verify and audit and, and so forth. So I think there's going to be a lot yeah. as we move into those models. Yeah. It's exciting stuff. And, and, and of course there's all, you know, there's all sorts of downsides, the ability of AI, artificial intelligence to, to more, uh, uh, more cheaply and quickly spread climate misinformation. Mm -hmm. And then there's the whole energy it takes to do this. And that kind of uh -huh. brings up our, uh, other story from Kate, is it Senko, Associate Professor of Computer Science at Boston University, uh, is generative AI bad for the environment? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, this goes the same thing we've, we, we saw with, with crypto. And, block, uh, yeah, and blockchain. blockchain mm -hmm. and crypto, uh, you know, the, the amount of, of computing technology that's needed, computing power that's needed to run these things is non-trivial. And it's, um, the question is, you know, how do we minimize that number one and you know, is this is the juice worth the squeeze actually uh you know in other words are we getting the benefit out of this uh that that you know that offsets in some ways the the impacts of the energy it's going to take yeah so um yeah that's um it's a lot of big questions here uh this and she took uh, i want to actually call them. out one of the yeah. stats because i think it in just this just as perspective so um and these are a couple of they're from a few years back, but in 2019, a generative AI model called BERT with 110 million parameters consumed the energy of a round trip trans transcontinental flight for one person. Mm. Um, that And that was the creation of it. Now, it doesn't really go into like every time you run it, what that means, but then GPT-3 is much larger. Um, it consumed 1,287 megawatt hours of electricity and generated 552 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. Yeah. So, and that's just for getting the model ready to launch. It doesn't actually count for what what gets used when you when you run it. So, yeah. the, the way these things work is that they're feeding data into it. It's called yep. to create what's called a large language module, an LLM in in geeky terms, so that the uh, AI engine can learn. What whatever we wanted to learn, and you know, it could be just sustainability related things. It could be everything in the world, and and that's the computing power. That's where it's um, it's really being generated. And so yeah, we're 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 just getting going here. I was happy to learn, and I did not know about Bert. Um, <laughs> the, the, this uh, was created uh, in Europe, uh, an AI model that that uses. Uh, oh, Bloom. Uh, Bloom. I'm sorry. You're right. It's an open access per platform uh, called Bloom. Thank you. Uh, that's been developed in France um, that has a much lower carbon footprint. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I know that as always, you know, the, the good technology and science folks yeah. are going to be working on this, but we're not there yet. Yeah. What data centers do you use? Who, where you, you know, like if you hosted an Amazon versus Google versus Microsoft, like what are you going to generate in terms of the uh, energy? And I think just, yeah, it's just one of those, as we get going, yeah. Don't forget this. And how do we go from generative AI to maybe regenerative AI? <laughs> well, Heather, if there's a word um, that uh, really sums up this event, Circularity 23, um, to pull from the graduate, it's plastics. Um, everyone's talking about plastics and what do we do? How do we do it? Are we getting there? Are we, are we you know, we're losing the war on plastics, plastic waste in, specifically? Um, and uh, it just was a theme that came up, frankly, in some surprising places in terms of some of the conversations that we heard. And, and you've pulled together a number of different pieces, as you do so well uh, for, for this week's episode. Talk a little bit about, first of all, what you, you know, what you saw that made you want to pull this together and then what these various pieces are. Well, I think it didn't hurt um, that the, the 
meetings um, regarding the Global Plastics Treaty just ended. So we, we yeah. came into this conference, um, a number of people who were at the conference this week had um, been at the, the negotiations uh, last week. There was a panel that, and there was a, uh, uh, of three people yeah. who literally had just flown back from Paris, the uh, INC2 meeting uh, on the Global Plastic Treaty. Uh, flew in the night before and were on stage the next day talking they were right. less than 24 hours from Paris. And, and that was really, really exciting to hear fresh from from Paris. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it, on the main stage, it was definitely a huge theme um, throughout the conference. It wasn't actually kind of gratifyingly so necessarily the biggest theme. But um, I, on the main stage, yeah. Well, and, and I think there were a couple of things that came across for me. Um, and we're going to queue up some clips in a minute. But the willingness of the negotiators to include the business community at this stage like right now it often that i guess the community has been kind of left out I and mean, you know much more about all these various negotiations on different issues than me but um right now they're at the table and they're being invited to be at the table and that kind of that really came across on stage and i think for me like a, a couple of the big takeaways um and actually you know, we could, I'm going to go ahead and, and queue up one of the clips right now, uh, pretty quickly. Um, Erin Simon, who's the vice president for plastic waste and business at World Wildlife Fund, she's like living this right now. She's going to be living this for months. Um, she's very deeply involved in negotiation as the, the organization is. And one of the things I didn't really think appreciate before I came to the event this week was the extent to which this treaty will have a ripple effect across so many um, sectors that don't necessarily think a lot about plastic today. And so one of the things that Aaron really stressed during the conversation was why you need to be in this discussion and why you at least, if you're not going to, if you're, if, I don't know, if you make the, the mistake of not being aware of it, why you just need to actually, you can't make the mistake of not being aware of it. You have to be aware of it. So she talked in this particular clip about why it will have a ripple effect. So here's Aaron Simon. Last year, I said that this was an opportunity for legacy, right? There's, it's very rare in sustainability, in conservation, to be able to see the result of your advocacy, your influence to drive such holistic change. Like that is basically unheard of in, in this space. And so uh, right now, businesses have a chance to shape it and partner with these member states to do this, right? And so maybe you don't want to get involved at that level because it's, it's big and it, it is, it can be overwhelming and <laughs> lots of goosebumps and sometimes very frustrating. Um, but I, I think just like coming from some of the notes that John was mentioning in his, uh, his quick talk where he said, you know, it's time to unlearn, right? There are actions you can take in your organizations today, right? Moving, thinking truly about moving to a certain circular economy. Um, he also said with coming to terms with change, I got to be honest, no matter what this treaty looks like, whether it is as ambitious as WWF wants it to be or some other version, it's going to change the way we do business. That is happening. So it's time to really get comfortable with that and think about your industry, your business, your sector, and what that means for you. And either get involved in shaping that circular economy or be ready for what comes down as a result of that. Um, because it, it, is, it is something that is happening. And then I would say, um, take action. Don't wait for that. You're already seeing um, cat like just the negotiations themselves are catalyzing policy. They're catalyzing action. So um, don't wait around. Uh, and even if you're not in plastics, if you're in another sector, we're talking about municipal solid waste, whatever material you use, it is going to be impacted by this. It is going to trickle to apparel and to all other things. So it's coming, um, which is great because that's why we're here. We want to we want to move from linear. Um, and go big, right? Seed the change within your organizations and when you have the power to, because um, I think we don't really have a lot of more time to waste. So I want to actually ask your opinion about this. I, I actually have not really had such a refreshing comment from a, a person from the State Department on stage. We had, uh, there was a, a woman, Liz Nichols, foreign, a foreign affairs officer who is also involved in this particular panel. Um, and she is... Um, in as is Aaron deeply involved in the uh, the discussions and negotiations, and she came to the conference to talk to the community here about uh, the very much the same thing that Aaron was suggesting, which is why 
the business community should be involved. Have you seen that sort of engagement by the State Department before? I'm, I just, again, I don't know. I'm, I don't have that history. Actually, yes. I mean, on climate change, the State Department, uh, John Kerry, when he was yep. uh, Secretary of State, and now obviously still as the U.S. Envoy for the climate, uh, were pretty involved uh, as long as as well as the EPA. But no, this is becoming. Uh, I mean, it's a global security issue, and it's a, there's a lot of. Uh, you know, cooperation among nations and cooperation mm. with U.S. And I'm sure in some cases the State Department is there to say to the to the global community, don't go too faster than we want to go. Is as yeah, what's the role? That's the role they play. As the United yeah. the United States of America likes to uh, throw its weight around in sometimes good ways and sometimes less good ways. Um, and so it, it just because the State Department's involved doesn't automatically mean it's it's the kind of progress that many of us want to see. Um, but no, they, they certainly on climate, and, and I, I do think that um, because you know, look, this is these are political issues, and we'll get to the you know we'll, in a minute to a terrific uh, session on, uh, on the, from the Descendants Project. Um, you know, the fossil fuel industry, this is uh, this is not good for them, and so they're going to throw their weight around uh, the the plastics industry. Um, and the chemical companies, the fossil fuel companies, um, and some others, you know, their solution to the plastic waste crisis is really end of pipe. They want to see more recycling. They, uh, for example, and recycling has been a dismal failure in terms of curbing plastic waste or globally, not just in the United States. And so the question is, will the State Department really be doing the bidding of the big fossil fuel and, and chemical I- interest? Um, or you know, and, and I don't know, um, I think, um, you know, they're probably playing a middle ground and as, mm-hmm. as we have to do in, in these days of hyper-partisanship and divided government. But, uh, you know, play the clip because it really is about, you know, how the private sector can be stepping in here, um, you know, and, and I, I think, you know, understanding and leveraging the kinds of investments that the federal government may be making, but at least, you know, leveraging i think the state department wants as it does support american businesses in becoming the solution to a lot of these challenges so so you talk talk about what you queued up from yeah Liz. so i just want to queue it up this way and just say that um you know the end of the pipe stuff we're investing in recycling but we also have to reinvest in the material substitutions and all of the the, the, the different ways we need to replace the petroplastics complex, if you will, um, petrochemical, petro, you know, it's, it's all part of the same. And she suggested it could take, uh, I know the figures being thrown around, $3.4 trillion to fully make a transition yeah. away yeah. from this. So and that includes all of the different things. And so uh, she made a pitch for how the um, private se- sector can capitalize on existing investments to accelerate action. So she really, the, the call to action from her was like, Tell us what you're doing, so we know what you're doing, so we can go in and, and and also support these these other, or at least be acknowledging these other ways of of dealing this, because that that was the main point in Paris, which is we can't just focus on recycling. Yeah. We have to refocus focus on reducing the demand for plastics, and we know it keeps growing. Um, so here's Liz Nichols, the with the Foreign Affairs Office at the U.S. State Department. Businesses can tell us what they want and what they need. In the State Department, but also all of the other 15 agencies across the government that we work with, everyone runs some kind of process where we bring in voices from the business community, industry, civil society, NGOs, academia. If you're not on our list and you'd like to be, find me. Let me put you, let me fill up your inbox. Mm. And I think the thing I'd like to say, too, is that um, the kinds of input that we, we want are going to iteratively shift as these negotiations develop and the window of what's possible shifts. And I guess I I recognize that the US government today, we occupy a certain Overton window of what we can and cannot do. And that window is also subject to change. And the way that that gets changed without getting fired here um, is for stakeholders to exert continuous change through their legislators, at the federal and the state level, and through their policymakers, and I make myself and the State Department available for that. And then selfishly, I'm going to put in a direct plug. So within the treaty negotiations, my specific role is to guide the U.S. in developing the financial architecture for how we 
put together roughly $3.4 trillion, which is what the OECD estimates is going to take to fully make a plastics transition. A lot of that is public money. Most of that is not. And so I would love to work with all of you to find ways that the private sector and all of the good internal investments you're already making in production and manufacturing and everything else, how we get those on a ledger counted towards the objectives of the agreement so we can draw direct links between action and what we're doing in those rooms. And then there's Joe and Joy Banner, uh, sisters, co-founders, co-directors of the Descendants Project, which is uh, committed to, uh, as, as its website says, to the intergenerational healing and flourishing of the black descendant community in Louisiana River Parishes. It doesn't say this, but otherwise known as Cancer Alley. Yeah. Uh, where there's just... Uh, huge and tragic environmental justice implications from the health uh, of, of air, water, and soil of a lot of these plastics companies, chemical and fossil fuel companies, and the plastics they're producing in Louisiana. And, oh, wow, what? This is so terrific. I know you've got two clips uh, lined up here. Uh, talk a little bit about what, you, what, what you've lined up. Yeah, so I, I will also mention that Joe and Joy were in Paris. They were at the negotiations as well. Um, and um, one of the observations that they made to me, um, actually kind of off, off stage later, was that the, um, the community that's focused on environmental justice, right? There, so there's a lot of, the number of organizations like theirs that have been going to the, the meetings, um, you know, those that represent indigenous people, the, the people that are being either sacrificed or influenced or, uh, you know, adversely affected by this. So they were there. And one of the things that they commented to me um, offstage again was that they were kind of almost shut out of the conversation more than they have been. But that meant that they had been noticed the first time. So they felt actually kind of felt good about that. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but they're very clear that recycling is not the answer. Yeah. Um, and that we can't rely on that. I mean, and, and you know, they got really adamant um, about why we should stop giving fossil fuels a lifeline. And I'm actually not going to set it up any more than just to say, wow, here yeah. is Joe and Joy Banner back to back comments on the impact of their community. Success for me looks like the embracing the fact that recycling will not solve the problem. We cannot recycle our way out of this. Recycling, taking something that's made from a toxic substance, you cannot make that into something that's not toxic. And even when you are recycling that, it's going to a community next door to it, probably our communities. So that's the real, like, I hope that message comes through, mm -hmm. that we are bending ourselves in pretzels, trying to make plastic work. And it just doesn't. Because without someone getting sick, as Joy mentioned, dying from cancer, but before you die from cancer, you suffer from cancer. There are people who are taking two types of, of painkillers in order to just make it to the next day. So I want everyone to understand the ramifications of it. Uh, being in Louisiana, we've gone through our fair share of hurricanes. And if you've ever evacuated from a natural disaster or a storm, there's something called contraflow, which means that all traffic is stopped and everything moves out of the area. So everything, the system that we're used to, guess what, is stopped. And within a day, everything flows in the other way. And that's exactly what we need for plastic, contraflow. We all need to move away from it. We need to stop making excuses for it, trying to make economy off of it, stop giving fossil fuel a lifeline. Because we have proven that we cannot live next to it. And we come from, thank you, we come from family members who work in petrochemical. This is our, this part of our culture too. So we're not saying this as, as if we're an alien and we're looking down. It's part of our, our family and our culture and our life and, and part of our lives. But we've seen too many people suffer and too many people um, deal with sickness from it. So I hope that we have made, that's one of the, the um, messages we were trying to, to communicate and we work with several different environmental justice groups when we were in Paris. So it's not just my community, it's other communities, indigenous communities, um, communities in, in Pennsylvania and all, who are feeling the same type of strategy and tactics being used. Um, so that we, we tried our best to intervene and we'll, we'll keep intervening as much as we can. 
Oh, well done. <laughs> well, and can I, and I just add to, nobody is off the hook, including ourselves in terms of materials. Because as we, you know, we talk about plastics, but you know, what we have right across about a half a mile from us is an aluminum producing bauxite plant that's, we have mercury in the soil because of it, right? And so I'm sitting here with an, with an aluminum bottle, but there is an impact to someone there. So everything that we do, the way that we consume has an impact on someone. And so we just have to be mindful um, and then come back to the humanity of it all, right? And, and even the, the language that we use, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing things like negative externalities and, um, you know, linear systems. Really? And I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> What is, I mean, what is, so, you, so you're going to come into my community, right, with council members and decision makers and, and that's going to look at these words and like, yeah, neg neg negative externality. <laughs> yeah, you, right, okay, yeah. great, right? And right. then you have, that language mm -hmm. has allowed access to coming in and polluting my community because no one is going to stop and say, I don't understand what you are talking about. Break it down in human forms for me to understand. And we get stuck with the pollution and the ramifications of it. We have children in our communities um, with diseases that are rare across the United States if you get four cases. It's that rare. We have four cases within two neighboring parishes alone. We have our asthma rates, um, asthma hospitalization rates, I think are double the countries, yeah. right? Double the states. Um, our poverty, you know, going back to, and, you know, the, the economic development and, and jobs. We have 14 industries in St. John the Baptist Parish. We have our GDP is the same as a country of, of Switzerland. Switzerland, yet our poverty rates is double that of the, of the countries and one third that of, over the states. So your jobs and your economic development, I don't know who it's working for, but it sure ain't working for us. And we're sacrificing our communities and you know, our land and companies are coming in and getting tax breaks and we are being stuck with the disaster you know, that these companies leave us. The only thing I'll say in setting up this last clip from Joe Banner is um, companies really need to think about the product that they're selling. It's not about the package that it comes in. And that's a missed opportunity. If, if, the value, if you're only thinking of your product in terms of the packaging, then you aren't putting a very valuable product out there <laughs> or you don't understand your customers. Mm -hmm. So uh, she really uh, exhorted the audience and, and the business people in the audience to think about that and then also not to think forget about environmental justice. It was barely mentioned here at the conference. I will say that was one disappointment. In It, it should have been a, a bigger theme in many of the sessions I saw justice, in yeah. environmental justice and how communities are impacted and, are and how they can participate in the solution. So again, here's Joe Banner um, and just wow. For me, I, um, I think what would be helpful was a realization that your product is not the container that it comes in. That we buy your products or use products based on the benefits it gives us. However you give us those products is how we're going to get that product. So for us, um, and I'm, I'm t just talking about the, uh, from, for me, having that, I will, I will get that and however you present it. And so there's a lot of control that you have over how we, we buy your product. We don't want to buy your trash. I don't want to deal with the trash being produced. I don't want to be deal with the trash and disposing of it and then feeling guilty when I can't dispose of it. Um, so all of those go into what I, what I want to just to, just to keep bringing up is that we shouldn't have to deal with your trash. There are great systems out there, I think, that have been used before. What happened to many of these businesses that existed before plastic was in the, um, was in the economy? They operated, right? They went maybe sometimes over 100 years without it. So tapping back into the systems that were in the past that were used successfully should be something that you're looking into. And also, I just want, want you all to remember, too, it's about environmental justice. And I have to say, throughout this conference and sitting on the panels, I haven't heard that term used a lot. You have to focus on environmental justice, environmental racism. It has to be part of your solution. And I, I, what I don't want to hear is that, oh, well, I went to my finance team and they said it was too expensive. If it was your family member dying of cancer, would it be too expensive? Right. It would not be. So I ask you, 
to think of us. This is why we're here. And honestly, it's hard for us to be here when we have some of the biggest users in the world, right? But we're here because we want you to know that we are people, we have families, we exist, we will not be ignored. But we really want you to help us through the situation as we just try to be healthy and happy. And I have confidence that you all will help us get there. The first half of 2023 has been marked by a rising tide of climate tech funding announcements related to the potential for ocean carbon capture. But considering how little we know about the potential impact of this technology, alongside the vast implications of changes to the ocean's biochemistry around the globe, policy group Carbon 180 is urging more companies and governments to proceed with caution. In its recently published policy paper entitled Depending on the Ocean, the nonprofit outlines its recommendations for how we can dive into this field more responsibly. Joining me to discuss some of those recommendations is Sifang Chen, Managing Science and Innovation Advisor at Carbon 180. Hey, Sifang, nice to have you here. Hi, Heather. Good to be here. I'd love to start with Carbon 180's definition of ocean carbon capture. In particular, I'm, I'm very curious why you chose to exclude projects or approaches focused on mangroves or other coastal ecosystems. That's that's something I usually see lumped in. So, you know, give us a sense of what you're focusing on and why that exclusion. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think first I just kind of want to start with what carbon removal is, uh, just to kind of set the stage for it. So it's basically these processes that remove emissions by taking out carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere so that carbon won't go back into the atmosphere to contribute to global warming. And carbon removal can be done via familiar methods like planting trees or through more novel methods like direct air capture. And ocean carbon removal is kind of this subset of carbon dioxide removal or CDR uh, that leverages the ocean to remove carbon dioxide emissions from the atmosphere. So essentially ocean CDR methods, they take out carbon dioxide from the surface ocean and then store that carbon away durably. And this is gonna create more room in the ocean to absorb CO2 uh, from the atmosphere. So like you said, there's a surge of interest recently in ocean CDR and there's a myriad of reasons why people are suddenly really interested in ocean carbon removal. Uh, so first, I think, you know, we're really behind our climate goals and science tells us that we're going to need gigaton level carbon removal to hit our climate targets. Uh, and the urgency to drastically reduce atmospheric concentrations of CO2 is making these novel methods more attractive. And second, uh, the ocean is a massive carbon sink. It's actually the largest carbon sink on the planet. And CO2 is more concentrated in the ocean than it is in the atmosphere. And this means that it's potentially gonna be more efficient to remove CO2 from the ocean than from the air. And third, uh, ocean-based carbon removal might be able to mitigate some of the land use change concerns that you might have with land-based carbon removal, especially if you're going to scale things up to the gigaton scale. So coming back to the paper, uh, our white paper specifically focuses on ocean carbon removal approaches that involve a significant engineering and technological component. So we include things like sinking seaweed to remove carbon, and uh, things like alkaline or adding alkaline minerals to the ocean, among other methods. Uh, so while these approaches can be really different in terms of how they work, they all face a lot of the same opportunities and challenges. Uh, and I think this gets to your question of why we didn't include, for instance, things like coastal restoration. So first, uh, you know, these more technologically based ocean carbon remover approaches are all relatively new. So there is a high degree of uncertainty around their efficacy, safety, and impacts on the marine ecosystem. And second, uh, there's the potential for some of these methods to enable large-scale CO2 drawdown. And, you know, we're talking potentially at the gigaton per year scale if, if uh, they were to scale up. 
Uh, but in order for that to happen, a lot, a lot of these projects have to take place on the open ocean. And that means we're going to need, you know, technological innovations to get us there. Uh, we need to understand sort of the efficacy and safety profiles of these methods, and not to mention, you know, resolving governance issues around deployment of these types of projects in international waters, right? Um, and so in terms of why we excluded coastal ecosystem restoration from this, pa this paper, uh, that is because coastal ecosystem restoration, or sometimes also known as blue carbon, uh, have been around a lot longer than ocean CDR. Uh, folks have been doing this for decades. There's a lot more social acceptance and awareness around this as well. And also the co-benefits of blue carbon are more certain, uh, for example, in terms of improving local biodiversity. Uh, but at the same time, there's uh, studies that have shown the potential for carbon dioxide drawdown from blue carbon could be pretty limited. So, you know, at the end of the day, risks from blue carbon projects are low, but then the benefits are also pretty clear. And um, these types of challenges and opportunities uh, really kind of set apart ocean carbon removal and blue carbon. I would just think that, you know, they are kind of fundamentally quite different. And ocean carbon removal could have, you know, more drawdown potential, but there's more uncertainties associated with it. So I really appreciate you you kind of correcting me there with with the term carbon removal versus carbon capture. I mean, actually, I mean, it's all part the carbon capture is part of carbon removal, but I'm, I like your your larger frame. So thank you for that. Uh, and I you know, and you've you've actually addressed some of the challenges already in 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 um, that you're seeing that you're foreseeing with the, these methods and the sort of uncertainty and the you know the 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 lack of knowledge about like exactly what what's going to happen if you put some of these in place. So I want to go right to the recommendations that you were making in the paper then. Uh, and, and two in particular popped out for me, and I wanted to start with these. I'm, you're welcome to bring up some of the others, but the ones that really struck me were your your suggestion, or the team's suggestion that we really need to focus on developing appropriate permitting and oversight, particularly, I think, in the context of getting some pilots out there quickly um, or at least safely. I don't know if quickly will happen, but uh, and then secondly, uh, to improve the governance of ocean carbon removal. So as we know, and as you alluded, part of the challenge is that we have rules about what part of the ocean is owned or you know attributable to certain countries. Where whereas when you get into the vast, the vast unknown, you know whose whose jurisdiction does that fall under? So. Can you let's start with the permitting? You know why is that such an important piece of of what we need to look at right now? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think a lot could hinge on what happens with permitting for field testing in the next five years, uh, in terms of advancing uh, the field in a responsible direction uh, in ocean CDR. So field testing is really important for getting data to answer those questions I talked about uh, in terms of efficacy, safety, and impact of these ocean CDR approaches. Uh, but currently, there's just no clear pathways or processes to obtain these permits. And so without these permitting guidelines, essentially researchers can't collect those really crucial data sets and it's going to be really hard for the field to move forward uh, and to for the field to be able to be informed about how well these methods work and what are their impacts on the marine ecosystem. And further, I think this could also open the door for companies to take their testing, for instance, to places that have more lax regulations where there's less oversight and that's you know obviously not good. So I think in this paper, we recommend having clear permitting because we think that's really crucial. And I think that's one area where the federal government is obviously particularly well suited to step in. Uh, and I think in terms of how we want to see that permitting guideline to take place and how that would uh, look like, uh, 
I think we want to avoid, if possible, of having you know existing regulations apply to new technologies in a way that's forced and not well suited to address the challenges of these new technologies. So, for instance, in biotechnology, uh, we've seen this happen, and essentially, what happens is that you have this kind of fragmented and convoluted regulatory landscape where you're tacking on you know new regulations uh, to regulate these new technologies that are not necessarily designed from the ground up to sort of address the challenges uh, that these technologies face. And that makes this regulatory landscape really challenging for innovators to navigate and also for the public to have easy access to details about these technologies and further for regulators to keep pace with new developments. And so I think one way to avoid that is one, having really good coordination between regulatory agencies. That's gonna be really key to this. Um, having a single portal of entry, for instance, for permitting applications could help streamline the process, uh, both for project developers and also for regulators. And uh, I think if we can, designing regulations that are fit for purpose, so not just to you know tack on existing regulations that are not well suited, but really designing them in a way that take into consideration these new challenges associated with these technologies. And so to your second question on you know global governance and international governance, so that part is really going to be key, right? Because a lot of these uh, projects would have to essentially take place on the open ocean in order to reach that type of gigaton level removal that people are envisioning. But, you know, you obviously going to going to have these types of transboundary issues uh, that take place because you know, all of the oceans are they're connected. And so if you have a project that takes place in one place, that could have downstream effects somewhere else entirely, right? And so international governance is really tricky. And uh, currently, governance frameworks on you know, environmental and biodiversity often follow what's called the precautionary principle, which essentially means that our activities should aim to do no harm. Right. And then this is where you know a lot of ocean activities and marine policies are sort of based around this framework of precautionary principle. So existing governance and permitting structures are in place to make sure that we're not disposing harmful things into the ocean. So the ocean is a really complex and delicate system, and we want to be careful when we're perturbing it. But this framework you know, gets really complicated in the face of the climate crisis because climate change is already harming the ocean, right? Uh, for instance, if we think about ocean acidification, the level of acidification that we see in the ocean is unprecedented for the last you know, 65 million years. And ocean CDR is aiming to undo some of that harm uh, by adding things into the ocean to reverse some of this damage. And it's not dumping waste into the ocean, right? But it's possible that there might be negative unintended consequences. So it's kind of in this gray zone that's not really well regulated or governed by the existing frameworks that rely on the precautionary principle. So these frameworks need to be you know, updated in a way that take this into consideration. And everything at the international level always take a long time to sort of get moving. So these types of conversations should really start happening now. Right. So uh, I want to hit a couple more things uh, before we wrap up. So one is just a, another suggestion that your team makes is that there should be more focus on monitoring, reporting and verification. And kind of you were just discussing the rationale for that a little bit. But just again, just a quick focus on why that's so important and, and maybe a shout out to the entrepreneurs out there. You know, maybe maybe we need more of them to focus on that versus the actual methods. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, you know, at Carbon 180, we really think of monitoring, reporting, and verification, or MRV, as ultimately a tool for ensuring accountability to know what companies are, you know, actually removing, uh, to know that they're actually removing the amount of carbon that they have promised, uh, and to provide quantitative answers to those questions of efficacy, safety, and ecosystem impacts. 
So MRV is a really crucial part of CDR in general, but it can be really tricky for ocean CDR especially because you're largely dealing with uh, these open and complex systems. Uh, like I said, you know, you have this project taking one place and then that could have effects on other places. And then also along the way that you can have secondary effects from interacting with the marine uh, ecosystem, marine chemistry and other marine organisms. And so to measure those effects, you basically need a combination of in-situ instrumentation of remote sensing and modeling. Uh, and currently there are open or uh, ocean monitoring networks in place, but they're not really well suited to measure the effects of ocean CDR projects. So basically we need new sensors to be developed that are cost effective and can measure relevant parameters. And you also gonna need uh, modeling to complement this effort because it's just not gonna be realistic to only use you know, in situ sensors to monitor the whole ocean, right? So there's uh, open questions about what are the spatial temporal resolutions we need for robust monitoring and we need more support uh, towards research of MRV tools. And that's just on the technical side. And then there's also the side, uh, the non-technical part on standard setting. So for instance, there's a lot of different bodies right now, right, that are creating and vetting MRV technologies from, you know, carbon removal companies who are doing these projects to registries and carbon credit issuers. And uh, this creates confusion right now and room for conflicts of interest and at worst fraud. So it's gonna be really crucial that we put in place now uh, the right structures and incentives uh, to put Ocean CDR on the right track for responsible innovation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some of the, just to switch gears here, you mentioned some of the social benefits um, before of the, the coastal ecosystem projects and how long they've been in place and so forth. How can we ensure that climate and environmental justice considerations are part of the larger ocean carbon removal picture from the beginning and that they're not an afterthought? So this seems like a good time to put it there in the policy um, and, and so forth. But, you know, what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are two things that we need to keep in mind. One is the recognition that carbon removal is about rectifying past wrongs, that we're cleaning up pollution, you know, and that carbon removal should always put benefiting the environment and communities first. Uh, you know, it's great if this new industry can lead to more economic opportunities, but public benefits should always be the priority. Uh, and I think second is, uh, and this is, you know, potentially even more salient for ocean carbon removal because public acceptance of this new technology is low, uh, is that we need to come from a position of trying to meet people where they are rather than advocacy. And so what I mean by this is that when, you know, companies and uh, carbon removal uh, or ocean carbon removal proponents are engaging with communities on ocean CDR projects, rather than trying to convince these communities that, you know, this is a good thing, we should instead try to build up uh, the community's capacity so that they have the tools and knowledge to know what's being asked of them and to really understand, you know, the benefits and risks these technologies could have so that uh, ultimately the communities themselves will be well equipped and also empowered to engage with the projects on their own terms. So these are ideas for a responsible future. What would an irresponsible future look like? Yeah, so uh, in this paper, we included these different scenarios to illustrate you know, what kind of future um, implementing or not implementing appropriate policies could lead to. And one is you know, the quote unquote good future and the other is the bad future or the irresponsible future. So I think in this future, for instance, you know, there will be no clear permitting processes for research testing to take place. Uh, so we don't get the data on how well these methods work, how they impact the marine ecosystems. Uh, and then you, know, you still have companies that conduct these tests in places that have more relaxed regulatory oversight. Uh, and additionally, there's really poor community engagement uh, and what the communities want are sidelined for faster deployment. 
and companies could sell carbon credits based on, based on these projects without robust and transparent MRV taking place. And this could lead to a collapse of public trust in this new sector. And potentially even worse, there is you know, damage to marine ecosystems and coastal economies. So you know, it's a pretty dismal future, right? But then there's also the reverse, right? That we describe in the responsible scenario where with the right governance frameworks, research funding support, and incentives in place, we could unlock numerous opportunities that are good for the environment and for people. Sifang, that seems like a great place to leave it. I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's great to be here. You just heard from Sifang Chen, the Managing Science and Innovation Advisor at Carbon 180. And that's our 350 podcast from Circularity 23. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization, stories and events we've mentioned this week. And I'll, don't forget, as I always say, check out our free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. Our address is still 350 at greenbiz.com, and we love to hear from you. I'll be traveling next week, but Heather will be here with Nathra Rajendran for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Microsoft. Join Microsoft Chief Sustainability Officer Melanie Nakagawa and other sustainability leaders for a conversation exploring the latest tech innovations to help companies address reporting regulations. Tune in on June 15th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on LinkedIn Live and learn more at microsoft.com forward slash sustainability. And this episode is also sponsored by 100 Plus Accelerator. Applications are open. 100 Plus Accelerator is searching for solutions to maximize collective impact by partnering with innovative startups to solve some of the world's most pressing sustainability challenges. Visit 100plusaccelerator.com and apply by June 30th.